um, I forgot to mention this. Yesterday we had a, a just a tremendous men's meeting. Uh, it was our our monthly prayer <laughs> breakfast, <clears throat> and um, we had a, a visiting speaker, uh, our brother uh, Rob McElyer, who leads the Lifehouse Ministry. It's a ministry to orphans and uh, orphaned children, and um, anyway, we. Uh, recorded it so for some of you who missed it and some of you ladies who were wanting to hear him <laughs> fear not we uh, and the Lord willing it maybe in the next couple months um, he'll come and speak on Sunday morning I've asked him to do that and he's agreed to do that at some point in time we'll have to schedule it yet but at least you can get uh, what was delivered to the men yesterday a word of, of faith and encouragement it was very inspirational and so you can go online uh, as with other things that are preached here and taught here, um, you can uh, access that uh, under, um, I'm not sure what it's titled, but you'll be able to figure it out by, by the date, uh, 223. So uh, enjoy. It was a blessing yesterday morning. So in Matthew's Gospel 23, as we continue our ministry of the Word through the New Testament here, Jesus has just finished with a scathing rebuke of the establishment. The Sanhedrin was present as he ministered to his disciples and to the multitudes that were there in the temple. This is the last Passover that Jesus attended. And he, as the Lamb of God, is going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And in so doing, he has waylaid uh, the establishment with seven woes revealing in their hypocrisy and their pretentious attitudes and now we see here at the end of chapter 23 in the first couple of verses in chapter 24 the other side of God's heart God's natural inclination is not to rebuke us and to condemn us or to judge us but rather God's heart and God's natural inclination is love towards his people. So if you've come here this morning and you think that, you know, you, you, you've blown it, you've made, a few mis- you've made some mistakes throughout the week, or maybe you're, you just really haven't been walking with the Lord as you ought to, God is not here to condemn you. The Bible clearly tells us there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Those who walk in the Spirit are just freed from that. You belong to God. Let me say this in regards to that. When you receive Christ as your Savior, you become righteous. You receive the gift of righteousness. You and I cannot in any way improve upon that gift. Though you would spend all your money and spend all your time giving to the poor, helping the needy, and serving them, That would not make you more righteous. You are as righteous today as you will ever need to be in the sight of God. Why? Because it is a gift that God has given to us because you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you don't have to relate to God. I don't have to relate to God on the basis of works. I relate to God on the basis of faith. I simply trust him for what he has said he will do. I accept his promises as to me personally that God will complete the work that he began in me 
He's going to finish that. He doesn't leave any projects, and you are, and I are projects. We'll all admit to that. He doesn't leave any projects unfinished. I know some of you wish you would speed, up, speed it up, but that's just the way it is. It takes a little bit of time, uh, and that's what it's all about. So I, I need for you to understand that. God wants you to understand that. God's natural inclination towards you is to love us and to just, as it were, coddle us and hold us near his heart. And so after this scathing rebuke, because they were guilty and they were God-haters, actually, feigning themselves to be actually representatives of God in which they were not by their actions and by their hatred of Jesus. And so Jesus, as he's there, uh, begins this lament in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. And then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. His disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so this morning we'll look at three main things here. Jerusalem, who uh, we know is the city of God. We'll see that here. Uh, but it also is an inference towards his people, Israel, and God's care and affection for Israel. We will see his intentions for Israel and then uh, his withdrawal, as it were, from Israel uh, this morning. In verse 37, we see that Jerusalem is repeated. And it's always a when you see a, a repetition of that nature, you need to pay attention. This is something that it, it, it invokes intensity. We're to see intensity and the affection that God has for his people. And for Jerusalem as a city, this is the city of God. The scripture uh, tells us this in Psalm 87. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious are you, our things are spoken of you, O city of God. And so Jerusalem, whether uh, we appreciate it or not, is the city of God. It is, very, it is the apple of his eye. He is fond of the city of Jerusalem. Psalm 46, if you're taking note, Psalm 46, 1 through 6, tells us that God is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in trouble Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, and though its waters roar and be troubled, and though the mountains shake with swelling, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place, the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged and the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. 
This is such an incredible text when we think about what God has in store for the city of Jerusalem. It says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now think in your Old Testament mind just for a moment. And if you're taking notes, it would be Ezekiel 47 verses 1 through 12. There's a, in the return of Christ, he will have a river that's flowing from the temple of God out through where what we now call the Mount of Olives. And that river will flow from out from underneath the, the door of the tabernacle, the tent, the, the, the place of God's seat, and will flow out to the east down to the Dead Sea, as it tells us there in that portion of Scripture. That is yet future. God has a tremendous future for Israel's capital, Jerusalem. Psalm 48, verse 1 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, it's the joy of the whole earth. Is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. And now in Revelation 21, this is what John saw in the spirit. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. This is the glorious future that God has for the nation of Israel for all believers who are part of the church of Jesus Christ and for, in particular, the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven. God isn't done with the nation of Israel, as we'll see here. But God, in his love, in his fairness, and in his justice, measures out punishment that is due for the rebellions that are against him. As we see this affection for Israel and for Jerusalem, we can't help but see that it is an outflow of God's goodness. There's nothing greater than the goodness of God. As Jesus was approached by the rich young ruler, you remember. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life was the question, and Jesus stopped him right there. (laughs) Why do you call me good? There's only one good, but God. And yet, this is one of the most important principles that we can easily overlook as believers. Because when we're going through pain and when we're going through suffering, we all become theologians. We begin to think about God. You know, I love God, and and I know He loves me, but man, if He really loved me, you know, (laughs) what's He let me go through this for? 
He could have stopped this. He could have protected me from this. <laughs> I've mentioned this before, but it's something that's stuck in my heart uh, since the first time I heard it. It's sort of become mine, but it came through Corey Ten Boom. You know, she was in prayer one time, and, and she was sort of disappointed in, in how God was working in, in through her life. And she said, you know, Lord, you'd probably have more friends if you'd treat them better. <laughs> And so we sort of have that thing, you know, like when we're going through it and we're experiencing a lot of things that we do not prefer, we begin to question the goodness of God. And this was actually the attack of Satan against our first parents. You know, if God was really good, he would not withhold from you this knowledge of good and evil. See, God's actually not that good. He's actually holding out on you. And he began to manipulate and lie and distort God's word. But we can never forget that that is the very nature, that is the very basis of who God is. God is good. <laughs> the Bible tells us that when we begin to question the goodness of God, that it will be a downward turn away from Him. Just like our parents who doubted that, what did they end up doing? They end up hiding in the bushes when God came around. You and I want to do that. We, we, don't, we get offended by God allowing certain things. So we want to run and hide from him. We don't want to draw near to him. And, and, and this is exactly what the enemy wants. He knows if he can get us isolated and he can get us away from God and, and seeking God, then he can destroy us ultimately. He can destroy our faith. Now understand that is the plot. That is the plan that he's divided against all mankind. He wants to destroy all of us. And we must be careful when we're disappointed with God. We must guard our hearts. Jonah is a tremendous example of someone, a believer. In this case, he was a prophet. He was a spokesman for God. But he was completely disappointed and did not agree with what God wanted him to do. Now, we don't really know why he became so offended by God asking him to go and preach to the Ninevites. And you can kind of read through that story there in, in Kings and all. And, 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 you can, and it's quite possible. We don't know. It's sort of a, a, a thought that I've had. Uh, the Syrians would come down and, and they punished the northern ten tribes and they took people captive and they brought in uh, foreigners and sort of supplanted uh, the people from the north and it was because of the rebellion. It's quite possible that during some of these raids that they, they could have uh, attacked some of Jonah's relatives. And so he could have been holding this bitterness and this anger towards them. We don't really know, but I mean, why would the guy be so opposed to going to the Ninevites and preaching to them a message of judgment and, and telling them to repent. I mean, he's probably thinking, I mean, I would be thinking if it happened to me like this, I understand that my natural inclinations, if I don't go tell them, then God will judge them and that'll be just right for me. And so rather than obeying God, we know the story, he took off in the opposite direction and God had to send a, you know, a submarine of, of, natural means, a, a, a great fish, <laughs> to swallow him after he'd been cast aside and you know, sort of puke him out on the beach <laughs> in, a, in a different sort of form, all bleached out from the gastric juices within the... I mean, he's just like, this guy was a real 
I mean, you spend three days in the belly of something, see what happens to your skin, you know. We don't really know. Uh, it's possible, and many people believe that he actually died. He, he experienced an out-of-the-body thing there, but we don't, again, those are all speculative things. But the point is, God didn't give up on him. And God didn't change his mind because he didn't want to do it. And that whole thing is about God seeking to restore a man who had been offended by his plan and purpose for his life. And so, as we read through that particular story, we've come to understand that he understood the nature and character of God. And so he was willing to go and speak in the name of the Lord, but he was not walking in the nature of God when he delivered that message. In fact, he's still angry after he realizes that they repented. I knew you'd forgive them. And he was angry with God. And we don't really know how that, his story ends. It just sort of cuts off there and it's sort of truncated and we don't really know if he actually worked it out in his own heart. He may have remained bitter the rest of his life because God spared the Ninevites, you know, and he thought they should have been judged. And so we have to be careful in regards to God's plan and purposes and even be thinking that we should even question the goodness of God. As Jonah said there, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. A person who turns away from God in rebellion is actually forsaking their own mercy. There's not much. Where else are you going to go for help, pray tell? God is our help. A very present help in trouble, as the Bible says. And actually, um, when you think about it, this is really at least a part of the experience that people will have in hell. Now, yes, we have to talk about that because it's what the Bible tells us happens to those who forsake God and those who do not love God. But hell is a place that is absent from the presence of God. God's light is not there. That's why it's referred to as outer darkness. There, all the love of God is gone. There's no love there. All, every individual demon, every fallen angel, every unbelieving human being is left in hell all by themselves. It's a personal, individual experience that people have. There's not a shred of God's love. There's not a shred of God's care. It is an utter place of hopelessness that we would want no one to go there, not even our worst enemy to experience. It is the complete absence of God's goodness. You see, God's goodness is actually His moral perfection illustrated. It's illustrated in creation in fact, is when God wants to sort of reveal himself to man, he says, look at my creation. And we are awed as we take time to meditate upon what God has made. And that's what he said after he made everything. Every day, each day that he created something. And God saw that it was good. God can do nothing but perfection. God can do nothing but what's good. So it all stands to reason if that is who God is, then we should allow him to do the work that he wants to do in our life because it's good, it's perfect, and it's wonderful. But it takes our submission uh, for that to become a reality. You know, it's kind of sad because in our culture, when we think of goodness, we think it's some ideal but it's not that at all. 
it is the essence of who God is. And it permeates all of creation, even in its fallen state. And it's even in us to some degree in our fallen state. I'm only, I only have goodness in my life because of God. It's not something I can generate. It's not something that you can generate. It, it is, a, is a result of who God is. But the thing about it is God didn't have to generate with it himself. That's just who he is. And so it's, you know, again, we're getting into stuff that's a little deeper than we can actually comprehend. How, how do you wrap your mind around all of that? But God's intention, as we see here, for Israel in verse 37, and his natural inclination is to gather his people. He wants to, as it were, gather his loved ones together and wrap his arms around every one of us. He's using the picture of a hen who is wanting to gather her chicks under her wings and just hold them tight. The idea, obviously, is to protect and let no harm come to us. And this is, uh, this feathers and this wrapping around and, and God protecting us and delivering us is a picture that's used uh, throughout the scripture. Uh, Exodus 19.4, if you're taking notes, um, this is what he said. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, speaking to the nation of Israel, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, you are to speak to the children of Israel. What's, what's true of Israel and his love and care, his hesed, his, his loving kindness expressed to them in making a covenant with them and choosing them to be his people is true for you. It's true for me. God desires to just wrap his arms around us and love us and keep us close to his heart. Deuteronomy 32.9 confirms this as well. For the Lord's portion is his people. You're Jesus, you are the Lord's inheritance. Jesus came to die, to live and to die, and in his obedience he is now rewarded with the people of God as his inheritance. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in the desert, in the wasteland, in a howling wilderness. He encircled him, instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up and carrying them on his wings. You and I may not know it, but God's been watching over our lives before we were ever born. And then after we've we're conceived and brought forth into this world. God has been watching over us every step of the way. God never will leave us. God will never forsake us. He's closer than we can ever imagine. In fact, if you're a believer, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't think you can get any closer than being inside someone. Now, that's a comprehension that's kind of difficult. Like, God's Spirit lives in you? Yeah. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Think about this for a minute. Some of you, and I fit this, he found me. I didn't find Jesus. He found me. Yeah, I was in a desert and a wasteland. I was wasting my life, destroying myself through the vanity and pleasures of this life. And God delivered me from that sinful life. Thank God. A howling wilderness. I remember, I can remember walking down the dirt road as a kid, kicking, kicking, literally kicking a can down the road. Just 
you know, 14 or 15 years old, just kind of wondering what life was all about. I didn't have a father. I didn't, I was pretty much on my own as a young, young guy. And it was the emptiness of life. And yet, what did God do? Oh, he let me run my course and do my thing. But then when it was time, he encircled me and he pulled me out. And he set me, he said, I have something better for you. I've got a new family. I've got new friends for you. And maybe that's what your situation is this morning. Maybe you've wasted your life. You've made some choices that were so absolutely wrong and you've paid the price for them. Well, understand that God can forgive and does forgive. He will encircle you and he will pull you out unto himself because God loves you. He loves us more than we could ever imagine. Verse 39 is, again, another expression of his affection. Blessed is... But for I say to you, you shall no more see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, God desires to come into our life. Now, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but the point here is that it is God who takes the initiative... It is God who is watching over us with great jealousy to reveal himself, to meet our needs. Sometimes we think God is distant. Where is he? Because if he was here, he wouldn't be letting this going on. That's not true. It's a, this life is a test of our loyalty. Did Abraham, was he any less loved because God waited 25 years to deliver him what he had promised to him in regards to a son? No. See, it's not our plan. It's his plan. It's his purpose. It's his timing. We may understand God's plan, but we don't always understand his timing. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a very patient guy. Sometimes I like to think I'm patient, but in reality, I'm not. I'm like the pastor who was pacing back and forth in front of his desk when his assistant came in and said, why are you doing, what are you doing? You're pacing back and forth like this. What are you upset about? He said, well, he said, I'm in a hurry, but God's not. <laughs> and isn't that the story of our life? I'm in a big rush to go where? I yet to figure that one out. Why am I in such a hurry? Just like I do this more, I really want to confess this, but I actually do that in my driving habits. Where am I going? Why am I in such a hurry? Well, because I, you know, it's, I tell myself that when I find myself being impatient with the guy that's a left laner in front of me. Now, you guys know what I'm talking about with the left laners. It's, an, it's a problem in our culture. <laughs> I'm not saying we should pray for it, but it is a problem. It's a problem for me. <laughs> God wants to come to us. This has always been his heart. John 1.10 tells us that he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And this is the, exactly the situation that's going on in our chapter here. He'd come to the nation of Israel but they are not recognized him because he didn't fit the mold. He didn't fit the model in which they thought the Messiah should be. Though it was prophesied how Messiah would act ministry he would have and the actions that he would perform. It's all illustrated right there in, in their scriptures. But they were looking for someone like Moses in the sense that would take rule over the nation and destroy their enemies and their foes. Namely, in their case, Rome. He did not fit their model so they did not receive him. John 5.39, again, Jesus reproving the leadership. You search the scriptures 
For in them you think you have eternal life, but they are which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. And I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe when you receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I come to accuse you to the Father, for there's one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. And if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, but you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? And so Jesus is really nailing these fellows to the wall in regards to their thinking and their understanding. And what the problem was is a natural problem that you and I have. You see, faith is not a, a natural reaction for me. Following my own thinking, my own logic is. In their case, they were looking horizontally. They were looking for the honor that comes on this level from men, from other people, from the people that they were there to serve, actually, rather than looking vertical. And this is why it's so important for us, to, us as believers to learn that lesson. Who are we looking to for our affirmation? Who are we looking to for our sense of importance. If we look horizontally, we're going to be disappointed. If we look vertically, we'll never be disappointed. Because God's love is complete. It's all we need. And because of their attitude, and because of their rejection, and not recognizing Jesus, he's going to withdraw. We see this in Again, verses 38 and 39. Your house is left to you desolate. If there is an, a continual unwillingness to repent, then God only has one response to that. He will withdraw. As we look through the Bible and we see the rebellions, we see the rebellion there in Genesis 3. God's response to sin and rebelling is to withdraw. In chapter 6, the rebellion there, again, God withdrew. In chapter 11, the rebellion of the nations, God withdrew. When Israel, in their history, came to the point and filled their lives with idols and began to serve those false gods, God withdrew. And the same is true for a believer if he will hold on to idols, God's presence will not absolutely leave initially. There can come a point when God will leave if one forsakes the covenant. But there will be an absence of God's presence in the life of a believer. Now, it's important that we understand a true believer receives the gift of righteousness. And I don't believe that uh, that's something that God will take away. So, a believer must deal with sin in his life. Sin does not break relationship. Just because I fall and I make a mistake and or I get hard-hearted and bullheaded with God and his purposes and I'm going through something that I don't prefer and I, I get you know ticked off at the Lord and I become angry with him and I've been angry with God. If you'll admit, you probably have been too at time. But when you repent and you turn, then you sense the presence of again, uh, again of God in your life. So sin does not break relationship, it breaks fellowship. If I will 
am unwilling to come around and repent and acknowledge the truth about myself and what God's doing, then I'm going to sort of restrict God's presence. God will, as it were, feel a, a distance from me. It's when I completely surrender and I yield to him that the Holy Spirit will come and just bear witness with my spirit to the love that God has for me. I don't know about you, but that's the place I want to stay. I, don't, I want to feel the love of God. I want to feel the presence of God. And when my fickle heart wanders away, I pray that God will just bring me back quickly. We're all tempted. We're, we're, we truly are our sheep, aren't we? We wonder. We get ourselves off in the bushes and off by ourselves, and we're deceived, and we just get confused, and we, we're not focused. I mean, there's all kinds of problems that we have, but God's love is there, always with us. In this case here, they've come to a point where, as it were, they've sinned away the day of grace. And that's usually the result of sin. You know, Leviticus 26, if you're taking notes, is a good little summary. You know, God said, if you will walk in my ways, I'll bless you. I'll bless your offspring. I'll bless the labor of your hands. Your crops will, they'll be, I'll blow you away with a harvest. I will find you. I will hunt you down. I will bless your life with my goodness. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what it means when you obey the Lord. And then contrary-wise, later in that chapter, if you disobey, your life is going to get really complicated with trouble. I won't protect you because you're rebelling against me. Your harvest is not going to be what you want it to be. Your life will not be one of satisfaction and fulfillment. And it's up to you. You can choose what you want. And this is something we need to, I think it's sort of implied in this, is that we have free will. Notice that he says that at the end of verse 37, but you are not willing. We're not robots. We're not, you know, made like machines. Because true love is spontaneous. True love is a, a choice of the will. And God has ordained that he will not force us. He will not manipulate us. He will allow us to choose. And in choosing, each of us are held accountable for those choices <laughs> that we make. And so, choose life. It's our cho choice if we want to walk away from what we know is true, what we've heard is true, and deny the truth. That's, if we desire to do that, God will allow us to do that. And that's not a good position to be in at all. But if there is that obstinate heart, then God has no other choice but to withdraw. And he's going to be leaving the premises here, uh, according to what Jesus has said. This is, these are things that actually were pr in Israel's history. This would not be some new thing that God did with the nation of Israel. In Ezekiel 10, uh, we are told that the glory of the Lord was departing from the temple. Verses Ezekiel 10, 18 and 19. The glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up its wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. 
This is a vision that he's having of what's happening in the spirit world. When they went out, the wheels were beside them and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the Lord of Israel was above them. And then verse chapter 11, verse 22, so the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wings beside them and the glory of the Israel was high above them and the glory of the Lord went out from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which was on the east side of the city. The glory of the Lord was departing because of their idolatrous practices and they were judged. Now, what's going to happen in Israel's near future in our context here is that the veil in the temple is going to be rent. And there's a couple things inferred by that. And obviously what is being inferred is that the presence of God would no longer be restricted to the high priest going in there. Because the gift of righteousness would be granted to all believers, we now had access by faith into the Holy of Holies. That's why the writer of Hebrews, who understood that concept quite well, come boldly to the throne of grace. We can come boldly to the throne of grace because we've been forgiven in Christ. But there's the other side of that, and it is that Israel would no longer be sacrificing. The sacrificial system was being torn away and would become obsolete. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament that this day was coming. Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. The children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. And so this again, confirms what Jesus said was going to happen. In Ezekiel twelve ten. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They shall look on me whom they've pierced and they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. And so what he see here in verse 39, For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now you're thinking, if you remember our scripture, this is the scripture that was quoted and what was happening on what we call Palm Sunday and Jesus made his triumphant entry. Was Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, now he's repeating that, but that, that sort of in in. In the present moment, that had happened in the past. So what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about a couple different things here. One is, I believe, that God is not done with the nation of Israel. That if those rebellious members of the Sanhedrin, if anyone who is seeking God will turn to the Lord and ask him to come, he'll reveal himself. He wasn't going to reveal himself anymore, any longer, through the old sacrificial system. It's now going to be a revelation by the Spirit. This is what Paul's actually talking about in 1 Corinthians when he talked about those who are under the law remain blind. But those who turn to the Lord, the veil is lifted. And so this veil will be lifted to those who turn to the Lord. This is why, from a practical standpoint, when we try to relate to God on the basis of how good we are 
and how many good deeds we are, the basis of works, that we remain blind. We don't understand, nor do we comprehend the plan and purposes of God. God works through the life of a believer on the basis of grace. It's always on the basis of grace and never of works. Why? Because God will be a debtor to no man. He owes none of us anything. We don't deserve anything. And it's when we learn to just leave it up to God and approach it on, on the basis of faith that he begins to reveal his plan and his purpose for our lives. So it's, it's just so easy for us to, you know, you, when you, you know, from the crib up, it's Johnny. I guess we have some Johnnies here. Pick a name that we don't have in the church, right? You know, be a good little boy and you'll get a reward. You'll get a candy bar. You'll get whatever. And so we were taught, you know, that if we're good, we're going to be rewarded for that. That's just sort of a, a natural inclination that we have. Well, it's not a natural inclination that God has. The natural inclination that God has for us is to just trust him. Take him at his word and believe the promises that he's given us in his word. It's not difficult. We just don't appreciate it sometimes. Remember years ago when I was out running one morning and I said, you know, Lord, I really don't like this idea of walking by faith. And I got reproved by the Spirit immediately. Why do you hate what I love? Whoa, whoa. Stop me dead in my tracks. God, forgive me. Because I, I wanted to see with my eyes. I wanted to know with, without seeing. Oh, that's not how we're supposed to relate to God. Why? If we could, then we could begin to get in the way. We would take credit. There's so many fleshly things that would arise if we were able to see and to believe and approach God on that basis. Now, there's a principle here that, again, I wanted to make sure that it's communicated. If you are not walking close to God, then that God feels distant to you. In fact, you even question whether there is a God. That kind of... I mean, really, the enemy's really gotten in and worked you, deceived you. Just as God is not done with the nation of Israel, God is not done with you. Romans eleven, twenty-five and 26 give us this position. And this is, I think, to me, um, I might be stretching it a little bit in the, in the end of uh, the chapter there, verse 39. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But when there's a turning to the Lord, I think their eyes are going to be open. But until then, there's that blindness. This is what's indicated here in Romans 11, 25 and 26. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. For the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away the, the ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning election, they are beloved for the fathers. For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, and yet you have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these who have been disobedient... <laughs> that through the mercy sown to you, they shall also obtain mercy. 
For God has committed them all to disobedience that they might have that he might have mercy on all. Oh, both the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God and how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. It is a mystery to us how God works with us as individuals, how God has managed things throughout history in dealing with the nation of Israel. And I believe as we'll get into this prophetic part of the chapter 24 in the next coming weeks, this is an important thing for us to grasp. God is not done with the nation of Israel. At some point in time, their eyes are going to be open and they're going to see God for who he is. And they're going to understand that Jesus is their Messiah. Uh, what a great day that will be. Now, in chapter 24, just the first couple of verses there as we wrap this up here this morning, they're, they're actually, because of their rebellion, the nation and the people, Jerusalem, unfortunately, is scheduled for destruction. And this is what the prophet told us in Micah 3.12 says, Therefore, because of you, Zion, you should be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of a forest. And so what Jesus is predicting here happened in 70 AD. Jerusalem was completely destroyed. Judgment came upon them. And fulfilled what we read there in Hosea. They would be many days without a priest, king, without a sacrifice. Titus raged a 143-day siege against it and destroyed the city and the temple. He himself, according to Josephus, did not want to destroy the religious buildings that were built by Herod. It was a beautiful facility. But the guys were not, the, the Roman soldiers weren't being paid very much. So they wrecked the place because it was overlaid with gold. And in burning the place down, the gold melted and flowed into the unmortared joints of the rocks. In order to get their gold and what they wanted, they had to take it apart. That's why it was fulfilled to the T what Jesus said there. Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so they worked hard and long, but they dismembered those huge boulders and were able to extract the gold for themselves. Again, fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus gave. I want to show you a picture, and I also want to encourage you to to maybe go to this uh, if you have access to the web. Uh, Let me show the picture here of this situation. Today in our world, there's... There's, and it's been going on since I've been a believer. And it's this f- fight and this argument over the Temple Mount. You know, we see the Dome of the Rock and the Allah Mosque there and all this Muslim presence on what was referred to today as the Temple Mount. And I believe uh, for political reasons and other reasons that are really unknown to us, but there is something uh, to it, uh, that this is not really the Temple Mount at all. This is actually the Fortress Antonio that was used by the Romans uh, during the time of Christ and before and after. 
where they had a little city unto themselves. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know this is quite large, a very big area. You could put a number of legions in there. You could have your own little Roman world within those walls. And you, and you had, in particular, the high ground. When you're a, if you're a military guy, you understand the most strategic place to be in a military operation is the high ground. So they would have been in that place of high, the high ground. And why is this important? Because we're fighting today, and it's being, there's banter back and forth regularly on the Jews, the Orthodox Jews, wanting to rebuild their temple. It's in the news all the time, regularly, over the last number of years, and will continue to be. They want to rebuild the temple. Well, based on what this documentary that I'm going to refer you to, which would be good for you to, to go and listen to it, and it's from Chuck Missler's ministry, uh, Koinia House, and the research that's been done is that the actual Temple Mount isn't there at all. The ancient temple that that we're speaking of here, which uh, Herod built, which was built upon the ruins of Solomon's temple, was actually Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion, you think, well, that's Jerusalem. No, well, there's, it's a little more than that. To the, to the north is kind of Mount Moriah where Jesus was crucified. Well, to the south is actually Mount Zion, referred to as the city of David. It's, I mean, we're talking a few hundred feet here. It's not far away. You see the little part that's circled uh, red there? That would be the city of David or Mount Zion. Uh, and so, uh, as I read there in Micah 3.12, Jerusalem shall be plowed like a field. In order for uh, them to get the gold out, they had to dis dissemble the, the whole thing. I mean, they destroyed Herod's temple completely to get what they wanted. There, uh, and it became just... They raised the place. I mean, it was just completely destroyed. There are pictures, and you can find these on the internet, because I did, um, of pictures of the early 1900s of farmers plowing, literally plowing this area and farming it. And so uh, it's pretty interesting. Now I'm going to play a short little clip here a couple times. Go ahead and run this video, and it'll, it'll sort of... It, this is taken from uh, YouTube... Uh, from this documentary done by Koinia House. A little-known historical account describes two covered bridges or colonnades that spanned some 600 feet between Fort Antonia on the north and Herod's temple to the south. Josephus describes them. Now as to the Tower of Antonia, it was situated at the corner of two colonnades of the... Court of the temple, of that on the west and that on the north. He then describes Fort Antonia as a guard to the temple and mentions that it is located on a higher hill and that it hindered the site of the temple on the north. These descriptions confirm that the fort was on the higher temple mount while the temple was 600 feet to the south and at a lower elevation. There's a So if you go to Acts 22, and that's what they're going to do there. When Paul, remember, Paul has made a vow and he goes into the temple. And they find out after he shaved his head and his other guys that made the vow. And they grab him and they're ready to rip him to shreds and murder him right there on the spot. When the temple guard comes down from 
someplace, the colonnade, and he rescues Paul, and then Paul goes up on the steps, and he's looking down on them when he's doing what? Giving his defense. So we confirm the, the uh, topography, if you will, of the area. The Antonio Fortress was at a higher level. And then when you watch this, and um, we'll have the link for you at the end of the service right there. See that bottom link? If you want to take a picture of that with your phone and look up that, it's called the New Temple of God that will be built in the city of David. If you type that in on YouTube, you can pull up this little video. And what they've discovered, and this is, I just find this so fascinating and so much fun, really, is what do you need when you are doing lots of animal sacrifices? Well, the most important things is water. So there's no water on the what is referred to as the Temple Mount now. There's not a, you have to, you know, bring it in with a pipe of some sort in these days. Well, the Guyon Springs is in that area, what we refer to as Mount Zion there, in that temple area. In the ruins that they've discovered down below, and that video will take you through the recent discoveries, are places where they had little channels where uh, when they would have the offals and things that would come from the sacrifices and, and the places, little channels for the blood to run off and all those kinds of things and flowing water. They had places where they could uh, tie the tie the sacrifices uh, in the stone. They could run their little loops through the, through the little chipped out loops and uh, they secured the sacrifice before they slaughtered. And all those things are there and they'll actually walk you through uh, those recent discoveries. So it's very easy for me to understand why that is such a, a lowered place now and it's been, sort of been forgotten about. But we have all these ruins down below that have, uh, the archaeological digs have discovered and again it gives me hope in our day I think the Jews and Israel will be allowed to rebuild their temple and I don't think they even have to worry about the Muslim presence because that's the Fort Antonio and so you know it says in Ezekiel that the, the outer part would be given to the uh, the outer courts would be given to the Gentiles and so it would fulfill that scripture. They don't need to be on what we call the Temple Mount today. The Temple Mount wasn't there to begin with. It's below there. So you can make your own mind up in that regard. I'm, I'm convinced. I'm pretty happy about it in regards to what, what's happening there. But at some point in time, Israel's eyes, and this is the most important thing, Israel's eyes are going to be opened. If they will return to the Lord, just like us, if we fall down and we blow it, we just... You know, we become a train wreck because of our disobedience. We have a choice that we can make. If we will turn back and acknowledge God and ask Him to forgive us, He will be merciful and He will come to us and He will reveal Himself to us. God is no respecter of persons. He's just asking those who are of that ilk, at that po- if you're at that point in your life, He's just simply asking you to soften your heart. Open your heart to God. Allow Him to just come in and make Himself real to you. Reveal Himself in a powerful way to you. This is what He says in Zechariah 10. And this is what He'll do for you and He'll do it for me. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look upon me whom they have pierced. That is going to happen. And I'm telling you, 
grace and supplication can be poured upon you and upon me if we will come and we'll humble ourselves before God and turn to him. He'll restore us. That's God's natural inclination. That's what he wants to do. He wants to gather us together. He wants us to live in the atmosphere of his love because he knows that that's what we need. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for your great love. And thank you, Lord, that you've rescued us from spiritual ruin, from dismal emptiness, foolishness of human pride. And you've forgiven our sins and you've adopted us into your family as as sons and daughters. Lord, we are eternally grateful. We know we don't deserve one thing from you, but you are a God of goodness. You're a God of grace. And we just simply ask, Father, that our hearts would be open, our hearts would be changed so that we turn at your reproof. We humble ourselves to follow you and obey you so that you can heap your blessings upon our life. And I pray for Calvary Chapel Greenville, Lord, that you would command your blessing upon this flock, that we would learn to respond to your grace and be obedient to you in all things, Lord. Open our eyes, Lord. Open our ears and circumcise our hearts that we might be all that you've intended us to be, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand?